Lawyers always need to be on top of their game, or at least appear to be. It can feel overwhelming to recognize or admit when we aren't, and even harder to reach out and get help. Welcome to Sidebar, brought to you by North Carolina's Lawyer Assistance Program, where lawyers help lawyers by sharing their experience, strength, and hope as they delve into their personal journeys of recovery. Hi, I'm Candace Hoffman, Field Coordinator for NC LAP, and I'm excited to share my conversation with one of our LAP volunteers today, Will. We're going to talk about his article, Admitting Fear is the First Step to Overcoming It. I hope you'll check out his article in the show notes after today's episode. And now we'll jump right into the conversation. So, Will, thank you so much for talking to me today. Candace, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. I wanted to start with, I love this image that you talked about in your article of a room with people sitting in a circle saying, hi, my name's Bill and I'm an angry person. Hi, my name is Beth and I'm a perfectionist. There's something so incredibly powerful about introducing yourself in that way and then putting that thing out there, you know, that thing that you've a lot of people have been hiding. And I can you describe the experience that you talked about that you had the first night of your first AA meeting? Right. So it was it was interesting because it wasn't expected. I had called another attorney uh, to ask about meetings. And he said, meet me tonight at eight o'clock at this meeting. And so I went in without really any expectations and but was definitely ready to be there. And with no expectations, I was asked to introduce myself and say those magic words. And and when I did, it was it really was I, I've described it and I described it in the article as as flipping a light switch. It was it was like this switch. It was flipped and it was unexpected. And just saying the words publicly in a place where I felt accepted and supported just made this huge difference. And it, and it really started from there. But I know everyone has different stories around that. And not everyone experiences the, the light switch effect. For me, I was, I suppose, lucky in the sense that I did. It was interesting because I, I just didn't expect it. And it's hard to describe in words, what that feeling was. It was sort of a weight being lifted. I'd been carrying this thing, which I suppose you could call it a secret, although it was it was pretty out in the open that I had this problem. But but opening up about that took a weight off of my shoulders. So yeah, and and I and I often thought over the years that it's really a shame that other people who are dealing with other issues, um, whether it's the person who deals with anger or perfectionism or something else, I always thought it was a shame that they didn't have a place to go where they could do that and say, hi, my name is, and I suffer from this. Yeah. I mean, I, that sort of came to mind when, when all of this came up around health fear, I thought, okay, well, I've dealt with this other issue in this way, there has to be something to that. And so you talk about in this article, this crippling fear about health issues, death, disease, dying, those types of things. And I know most sane, rational people, um, I know of them, I'm not one, um, that, you know, they have a healthy fear of death and dying. You know, it's certainly not something I want to do, but you talked about being a crippling fear. How did it look in your life? Like, why was that different from a normal fear of death and dying? 
Right. Well, it it's something that for most of my adult life I've dealt with. What it tends to look like is I'll have some sort of symptom of something and that starts out as a thought. And that thought then builds to sort of an obsessive way of thinking about it. It can then turn into physical symptoms, psychogenic pains, that kind of thing. And what distinguishes this, I think, from an ordinary fear of disease that that someone else might have is the obsessive nature of it. And it, it becomes somewhat crippling in the sense that you wake up thinking about it, you notice something, and it just increases the mental chatter, it sort of is, it becomes all consuming. Over the course of my life, it's different things. I mean, my earliest memory of it really was when I was in college and I thought that I had had a heart attack and I thought I convinced myself that I suffered from heart disease, even though I had no family history of that. It just, from there, it just evolved into this obsessive thought that, and and instead of doing, the other thing that I'll say about this is because there is such a strong fear. My reaction to it was I didn't want to go to a doctor to find out whether there was anything wrong with me because I was afraid that they would say, yes, there is something wrong. So I I do think different people who deal with this issue deal with it differently. Some people go to the doctor all the time because of this. My response has always been just avoid going to the doctor. And so as a result, I would never have well, it would take a long time to get resolution to whatever the obsessive thought was. And eventually it would go away and I would get satisfied in my own mind that this wasn't real. For me, that was that was a big issue. And one of the things I've had to learn to do is when I have something that I notice that is serious enough, then I go to the doctor now. And that's still, you know, that was a big step for me because that is a, is a dangerous place to go for me. So the doctor in your mind. Yeah. Doctors, you know, they, doctors have told me it's something like the fear of the white lab coat. Anytime that they check my blood pressure, when I go into the doctor, it's always high when I start and then they have to take it again you know, because it takes a little while for me to get comfortable enough to be there. So that's, and that's really part of dealing with this issue is confronting it. One of the things that I talked about in my article, uh, Tara Brock, who is a great writer and has a lot of wisdom, talks about walking through your fears. That That's really the only way to deal with fears is to confront them. And, and one of the ways of fronting this fear is to actually deal with it, to go to the doctor to deal rationally with it. And, and, and back to your question, I would say, you know, what, what distinguishes this from ordinary healthy fear is one, it's typically not rational. It's typically not supported by some set of facts. And two, it usually involves obsessive thinking. How long had you been in recovery before you tackled this fear before you started thinking about trying to make it better, talking to someone about it? How long did that take? Well, it took a long time. I, you know, I think that when I went into recovery, I think that that was a big step forward. I think that there was some period of time where I didn't really 
have to deal with those issues. I, I was, I guess, as people used to say, I was floating on the cloud a little bit. One of the things that we all learn when we go into recovery is you actually have to deal with things. One of the ways that I dealt with my fear of death and disease was to drink. It worked really well for that day or that night. And then I woke up to it again the next day. When I went into recovery, I I realized with a lot of things, not just fear of disease, that, okay, now I deal with issues without masking. I went for some period of time where I didn't really have a lot of obsessive thinking over health fears. And then I had a couple of things, health scares that, that brought it back up again. I did, I did deal with it in some healthy ways, but it, it didn't seem to be going away. I continued to have this problem. I mentioned in my article that I talked about it a little bit in counseling and that, that helped a bit, but what really turned the corner for me, and this was one of the things I wrote about in my article, was I had hit a point where I was so exhausted with dealing with this issue that I finally decided to open up about it. I had not really talked about the fear with anyone close to me. I just sort of kept it inside. One night, I decided I would share with my wife how long I'd experienced this, why I was experiencing in the moment, And there was something in that conversation that gave me that sort of sense of relief, that light switch relief that I had experienced before. And from there, it's only gotten better. It is a process and I still deal with it, but I'm so much further along than I had been. It was that, it really was that conversation that sort of broke the ice. Why do you think you felt that, as you described, I really love this term. Why do you think you felt more of that internal shift with the problem when talking to your wife versus talking to a therapist? Well, I think there's, there's a vulnerability in telling something like that to someone close to you. I can tell a, a counselor or therapist anything and not really feel vulnerable. And so I think it was in the vulnerability of it. It was, it it really was, this is really opening up. This is being vulnerable. I'm sharing this secret that I've had. I think that was probably the difference. I think it's different for everyone. I don't, I don't think that my story is necessarily true for everyone. For some people, it is talking with the therapist, clergy, a stranger, a mentor. It, it, it's really different for everyone. And I think that everyone has to figure, out, figure that out for themselves, whatever the fear is. But in my case, I think it was the vulnerability of telling someone close. And I'll, I'll also say that I think one of the reasons that I didn't, you know, in looking back and thinking about it, Uh, over the course of my life, one of the reasons that I didn't talk about it and didn't share it with people was because I thought I'd give it power. It was this irrational thought that if I say it out loud, it might come to fruition, you know, that this thing might be true. If I just don't say it, then it, then I'll be okay. And so I, I think, you know, 
that it took that it took the power of that thought away by actually opening up about it and then experiencing this sense that okay i've now said it and the sky didn't fall that is i i would say it's probably for me it was the vulnerability piece that makes a lot of sense why that would be so powerful and i thought it was really interesting and cool that as part of your process not only opening up to your wife and actually going to see doctors and looking for solutions for your health problems now that you were taking it even a step further it sounded like reading the tibetan book of the dead and looking into possibly volunteering with hospice. What's that been like? It's really been, it's been refreshing to actually, to think about death. I mean, one of the things, uh, Pema Chodron wrote a book about the Tibetan Book of the Dead, and it's sort of like the cliff notes to the Tibetan Book of the Dead. I I would never claim to have read the Tibetan Book of the Dead. It's, 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 It's pretty heavy and pretty deep, but she does a really great job of sort of giving a, 30,000 foot glimpse of, of what it's about without really going in in any of that. It was more for me, it was more about talking about death. It was more about by actually thinking and talking about it, it takes the power out of it. And, and I've, I've done that as, as much as I can to explore death and dying and, and without catastrophizing. Again, that's, an, that's a continuing process. I still get triggered, but one of the things that I've learned to do is is come back to presence. I love Eckhart Tolle says that we basically have four choices when we're faced with suffering. We can either accept the situation as it is. We can do something to change the situation. We can walk away from the situation or we can continue to suffer and just complain about it. In, in my case, with this issue, I, I think maybe I'm doing a combination. of I'm learning to accept what is. Death is an inevitable. And so I'm learning to accept what is. But I'm also doing some things to change how I deal with that. Most of us, when we're faced with suffering, we take that fourth option and we just continue to stay. We stay in the suffering that's just not a reasonable choice. If we want to move away from suffering, then we have to figure out what it is. And, you know, in the context of lawyers, I was thinking a lot about this uh, after I wrote the article. As lawyers, we're expected to have this public image and even even an image among those close to us of someone who has it all together there are no chinks in the armor. One of the reasons that we carry our secrets and our suffering, keep our suffering to ourselves is because we don't want others to see it. I would say to those lawyers, find an outlet, find someone that you can talk to because you you really, you just, you can't continue in the suffering. You can't, it's just not a reasonable option. And as long as you carry the secret, it will result in suffering. In my case, I would say that, you know, the the fear that I carried, the secret that I carried about my fear of death and disease didn't have as much to do with fear of public image as it did 
fear of giving it power. Again, that's different for everyone, but I would say that there are probably a lot of lawyers who are carrying secrets and suffering because of the expectations that are placed on lawyers. I, I think that's a really good point. I know a lot of lawyers, myself included, and a lot of um, lawyers across the gamut struggling with that imposter syndrome, having that you know facade that we have it all together, we have everything figured out, being afraid to ask for help with with mental health, but also just the practice of law, admitting that we we don't know every single thing. And the very cool thing that you pointed out in this article that I think so many people will find helpful is that when you admit you have a fear about something or you don't know something, you're helping yourself because you're taking the power away from it, but you really help the other person too. And to realize that we're all much more similar, that's really powerful and comes through in your article. I think that's a really good point. I I have been always been pleasantly surprised by the response when I share something with someone, I make myself vulnerable. All the things that I had thought in my head were going to happen typically don't. Uh, That's not to say that we shouldn't be smart about how we share and with whom we share things. But I, I have always been surprised by the level of compassion that I've received when I share something. And I think you're exactly right. The person who's on the receiving end seems to get as much out of that as the person who's sharing. I think the LAP and, and support groups and 12-step, that's a great, that's a safe environment. And when you go outside of that environment, I do think that and, and there are real issues for lawyers. I, I don't want to minimize that, that lawyers have legitimate concerns about going public with certain things. It's definitely a different profession and there are other layers to think about. The Lawyers Assistance Program is a great place to be open and vulnerable if you are struggling with any of those issues. Um, and so I think your your article is just widely appealing to everyone because everybody struggles with something. And I found it really powerful. And I thank you so much for talking about it today. Well, thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us at the sidebar. If this is your first time, we encourage you to listen to another episode or two, subscribe to our newsletter and peruse the resources at www.nclap.org. And if you know a lawyer who could use a hand, please share this episode with them today. Remember, at Sidebar, you are not alone. In fact, you are in quite good company.